my time in Congress, for the 14 years I served in the House of Representatives, I represented a district uh, larger than the state of Illinois. There were 69 counties in that congressional district. We conducted 69 town hall meetings every year. Uh, and uh, that means we're at a, uh, we did 105 town hall meetings the year before last. Uh, I'm trying to figure out how you do 100, there are 105 counties in Kansas, how you do that, uh, and uh, make certain that the Republicans have the majority in, uh, in 2014. And so I'm sorting out uh, that aspect of my life. But I have spent, uh, much of uh, my political life uh, listening to Kansans, and uh, it's where uh, whatever uh, understanding I have of issues uh, really does derive from Kansans, who, as you know, are generally Republican, but mostly they're just it's a conservative set of, set of values that they generally share, but mostly they're just looking for common sense and good government and uh, resolution of issues uh, as compared to a, a constant uh, ideologue uh, fight. Uh, my interest in politics. Uh, in fact, we were having a conversation about uh, Watts lines, uh, and I go back to, to uh, 1974. I was invited by my congressman, who I had met uh, in, uh, in my high school. I was the student body president of Plainville High School, and I met my congressman, a guy named Keith Sevillas, uh, and he invited me to be a summer intern here. Uh, I was having a great time in college. My parents, uh, who had never been to college, were smart enough to encourage me to accept that, despite the fact I thought college was a lot of fun and why would I mess up a summer uh, of college experience. Um, they encouraged me to come here. I came here in 1974. It turned out to be the summer of Watergate, and I became fascinated by this place, and I, I watched the Peter Rubino Judiciary Committee hearings. I watched President Nixon be impeached, and really for the first time in my life thought, well, maybe there's an opportunity for me someday to serve in the House of Representatives and maybe I could do this a slightly different than what I saw uh, in the summer of 1974. And by the grace of God, the kindness of Kansans, I've been given that opportunity to try to make a difference on what we have uh, in our nation's capital. Um, it is, uh, to, to shift to the, to the current moment, I'm happy to talk about what's going on in the Senate floor. One of the perhaps advantages of being a, uh, the chairman of the NRSC is the opportunity to sit in leadership meetings and on, on occasion have the opportunity to express an opinion and to try to direct the direction that uh, Republicans in the Senate are going, um, and so uh, if, you, if you'd like to talk about what's going on in the Senate floor, I'm happy to do that. In regard to the NRSC, I, I really think that uh, for people who know me well would say that uh, Moran agreeing to be the chairman of the committee is a bit outside his, uh, his characteristics, his uh, perhaps even comfort zone. Uh, and the experience that, I, that, that caused me to be willing to do this occurred shortly after I was elected uh, to the United States Senate. And um, I was standing on the Senate floor, and I was uh, approached by uh, Senator Reid, uh, the majority leader. And I knew uh, Senator Reid from my days in the House, in the House gym, in fact. Uh, Senator Reid, for a long time, had a locker just a few, few down from me in the House gym. And we'd see each other each morning for a long number of years. And, uh, but Senator Reid that day, in a casual conversation, asked me, uh, Jerry, how do you like the Senate? And my response was, uh, I'm, I'm very grateful for the opportunity that I've been given. I don't tell any House members, particularly those from Kansas, I like the Senate better than the House. <laughs> and, uh, but leader, we're not doing anything. And uh, Senator Reid's immediate response to me was, well, Jerry, you just need to understand we're not going to do anything until after the election. Uh, and so when you get elected to public office, uh, and there are very few elections that are easy, uh, and most of us are motivated by the desire to do something uh, and to be told at that stage, almost two years before the next election, that nothing was going to be done was this eye-opening experience to me and, and very troublesome. 
I don't expect to win uh, every issue, and I represent, uh, I always have considered Kansas a, 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 as the rural nature of our state. We're a minority here in Washington, D.C., and so I'm accustomed to not always getting my way, and I don't expect that. But I do expect the opportunity to have what we now call regular order, but to have the opportunity to debate, to discuss, to have committees function, uh, to have hearings and amendments offered, and to be on the Senate floor with the opportunity to try to fashion uh, legislation. My experience, I was, as, as Rick said, the, the, the majority leader of the Kansas Senate, and my experience, at least in those days in Kansas, was that Republicans, Democrats, we certainly had a, a, an occasional kind of political or partisan issue. Often the issues to us were rural and urban, uh, and the ultimate goal was to pass a, a bill. Uh, and the days that I enjoyed the most in being in the legislature were things called conference committees in which I chaired the Judiciary Committee for most of my time in the legislature and the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee and one of my Republican colleagues and, and uh, one of his, in this case, his Republican colleagues and then he, a, a Democrat piece would sit down and we'd work out legislation and the goal was, can we get a bill that could pass the legislature and be approved by our governor? And I miss the days in which we're actually legislating. And so my interest in, uh, in serving in the NRSC capacity really revolves uh, around a desire to see the Senate function, to have regular order, to have the opportunity to have Americans see their, their senators have a debate, uh, to have votes that occur, uh, and to try to move this country in a direction that uh, the Senate decides is the direction we ought to go. Uh, I happen to believe that Republicans have a better vision for the future of our country. I share the principles that were outlined in your founding document. Uh, and believe that there is great potential in our country, that great things can happen uh, if we have a citizenry that is engaged and, a Congress, and uh, a Congress that responds and a president who will lead. And I'm fearful that we have a president who doesn't lead and a Congress, at least in the Senate, who is reluctant because of the political implications of casting a vote. We're not going to do anything until after the next election. And so my conclusion was, how do I change the Senate? And one way I can do that is to go out and see if I can recruit, raise the resources, put the nuts and bolts together to see that we have uh, good candidates uh, who can not only be nominated in primaries, but can win in general elections. And my goal is to see that we have folks who share the principles that you outlined earlier, who share principles with me, uh, and to make certain that regardless of the kind of uh, specific that we, we bring to the table, that there is at least uh, the bill is on the floor, amendments are offered, the debate occurs, votes occur, and the Congress functions again. Uh, and that's what we're about, and uh, we would appreciate uh, the opportunity to, to see that that comes to fruition in, in 2014. Uh, we have uh, hired a professional staff, and Rob Collins was introduced to you. Uh, we have put a team together, in my opinion, that is great professionals. Uh, who know their business, who have expertise, who are committed to the cause, uh, and um, we are working hard to make certain that uh, we accomplish our goal of uh, more Republican senators in following the election of 2014. Uh, let me, under the theory that whoever was telling me that we're supposed to be done in seven minutes was actually telling me the truth, or maybe just somebody who knows my speaking skills well, um, I'd be glad to take this conversation in the direction that you'd like for it to go, whether it's policy or politics. Okay. Um, Senator, since Mr. Shelby introduced the past, <laughs> is 
comprehensive uh, tax reform alive and well? Uh, Rick's question, uh, and I knew he wouldn't pass. Uh, Rick's, uh, Rick's question was, is comprehensive uh, tax reform alive and well? Uh, I think it's uh, on uh, life support uh, at this point, and I say that so reluctantly. Uh, it's actually the issue that a year ago I would have said there is bipartisan support for doing something significant uh, and important for the country. Uh, and over time, that my sense of that bipartisan support has evaporated. And in fact, you begin to see, I mean, today is an example of where the desire to use the revenue that could come from closing tax loopholes is to be used not for comprehensive tax reform and ultimately lowering rates, but to pay for avoiding a $85 billion reduction in federal spending. Um, I think the tax code, in, I, I think Americans are willing to pay taxes for good government. I think that if we could show that the money is wisely spent, and if they had the sense that the tax code was fair and appropriate, uh, there is a willingness to support the good causes that uh, government can provide. But we, we don't spend money wisely, and we have a tax code that is so complicated and convoluted that uh, there is not much belief that uh, this is working well. And I think that the tax code could unleash uh, great economic opportunities for Americans. Uh, and I get this occasionally at home. We're a bit of a populist state. You know, why don't wealthy people just pay more taxes? Republicans have a real challenge here because, in my view, we often sound, way too often sound as if we're, we're, we're the defenders of the wealthy. What we are the defenders of, what we should be the defenders of, is the opportunity for everybody to become wealthy. Uh, and the tax code is an impediment to that occurring. And the thing that I try to always remind Kansans, uh, if they don't believe that certain folks are, or companies are paying sufficient taxes, that was something you might be able to address 50 years ago, 25 years ago. But in today's global economy, in which capital can flow free, uh, flowly, uh, freely flow from one, uh, one country to another. Uh, our ability to, to have a tax code that is detrimental to a business or to an individual means they'll be someplace else, and the jobs that we so desperately want for Americans begin to further erode and disappear. That was my short version. Thank you. Thanks, Rick. Yes, ma'am. Yes, uh, Ann Canfield. Last night, the uh, president was on the air saying that he has submitted detailed proposals to Congress on how to implement the sequester cuts more judiciously. And since he hasn't sent a budget up, and it's not, if he does send one at all this year, it's not expected until after the CR is, is done, where all the budget stuff will presumably have been negotiated or a good chunk of it. Is there some other piece of paper we're missing? <laughs> Um, not that I'm aware of. Uh, the question was, the President says that he has a detailed plan that he submitted to Congress to, uh, to, to handle the sequestration. I know of no such document. I had this conversation with OMB and the Appropriations Committee hearing uh, a week or so ago in which um, the OMB was talking about entitlement reform and the President has a detailed $4 trillion plan. And my question to OMB was, could I please see that in writing? 
and the, the response was, well, the President's negotiated with the leaders of Congress and has outlined his $4 trillion plan, to which, again, I, res I would respond, I represent 2.5 million people. I've never seen the President say anything of substance on this issue that provides any details. Uh, and a, as, as the kind of phrase that's become common is that uh, a campaign speech cannot be scored. Uh, and so it is one of the greatest complaints I have about President Obama is the unwillingness to engage in, this, in these issues. So I'm unaware of any sequestration plan by the President. Uh, my guess is that when we offer to give the President uh, the authority, the ability to make decisions about how $85 billion would be reduced from spending, uh, the, the Democrats will, on his behalf, will decide that they don't want him. He has decided he doesn't want that authority. Uh, it's much easier to go out and campaign. I saw Tom Brokaw on, uh, must have been on uh, MSNBC uh, yesterday, talking about we have a president who prefers to campaign than to govern. And I thought it was a pretty, it's a very accurate description in my opinion, and I like the fact that Tom Brokaw was saying it. Uh, it's just easier to go campaign across the country than it is to govern. Uh, if I could take one more moment to criticize the president. Even in Kansas, there are people who, uh, who, are, uh, who are voters for President Obama, and I had a friend of mine before the election tell me that, uh, Jerry, you know I'm going to vote for President Obama. And I said, well, I suspected so. And she says, well, you know, set aside politics and policy, which is kind of hard to do. Set aside <laughs> politics and policy and tell me what's wrong with the president. And this is, in my view, what's wrong with President Obama is he is above the fray. Uh, there's an arrogance. There's no relationship with members of Congress. Uh, if you could have an honest conversation with a Democrat senator, I have no doubt that what they would tell you the same thing. All of us know in our own lives, uh, in our own families, in our businesses, that if you can sit down at the table and get, let me say it differently, if you know somebody and you're sitting down across the table from them to try to resolve something, if you know them, it's much more likely that you're going to have resolution. If you, can, if you know them as a person, if you know where they're coming from, if you reach a level of trust, and this president has never engaged, so that my answer to my friend in Hayes, Kansas, was this president has never provided the opportunity for any of us to get a relationship with him so that we feel comfortable in the conversations that if they ever would occur, we might be able to reach a conclusion. It's embarrassing to me to say to Kansas, it's embarrassing to me to tell you that my conversations with President Obama are less than five minutes in two and a half years. He called and congratulated me when I was elected to office, and we had a meeting at the White House in which we talked about budget issues, and I shook the President's hand as I walked out the door, and we talked about his family connection to El Dorado, Kansas. What I mostly know about Washington, D.C., and certainly the United States Senate, is what I knew as a kid and throughout my life of reading history about how this place works. And everything that I've read suggests to me that senators are invited to the White House and you have dinner and you get acquainted. This is not a, I'm not complaining on a personal level, but this place doesn't function if we don't have a connection to the people we have to deal with, and this president provides no connection. So even if, and, and I've been in Washington, D.C. now for for enough time to serve with, with uh, President Clinton, uh, President Bush, uh, and, and uh, President Obama. And I'm, I'm sorry if I'm offending any Bush uh, congressional relations folks, but the absolute best was President Clinton. It's not a partisan thing. The President reached out and had a relationship. 
I can't tell you the name of my White House liaison. I don't know who that person is. Uh, and so this, this desire to accomplish things is, uh, so if the President presented something, there's no relationship to build around it. It is part of the, the real dissatisfaction. We, we, I don't know the exact reasons. We'll probably ever know the exact reasons of why we have a, a, several of my colleagues, some of my best friends, and some of our best senators who decided not to run for re-election. But this kind of frustration, the ability to do things, to work together, to have regular order, to resolve problems. You know, when anybody tells me a problem in their life, and it's, I think it would be true of everybody in the room, your immediate question is, well, how can I help? And so. All, I mean, almost every human being, and certainly people who are involved in the political process, their goal in being in the political process is to be able to, to, to have, when you get the answer to the question, how can I help, to actually be able to help. That would suggest that this place function again. Yes, ma'am. In the meeting tomorrow at the White House, will the Republican leadership um, make a public demand for a detailed um, list on um, the President's implementation recommendations? Uh, the question is, what uh, the, at the meeting tomorrow will the Republican leader, uh, and I, I don't know what uh, Senator McConnell or, or uh, Speaker Boehner will insist upon. I know that both have said that we're getting out of these last-minute negotiations behind closed doors, and that was my response yesterday to the announcement that there's going to be another meeting at the White House the day after sequestration occurs. Uh, the, 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 the timing, the, we are damaging our country's economy and therefore the American people families and workers and because we do things in a crisis to crisis mode uh, you've all heard about the uncertainty we talk about it all the time but we contribute to it every time there's a problem we try to resolve it after the fact so part of my complaint is why would we have a discussion the day after sequestration if we're going to have a discussion but perhaps even more damaging or annoying to me is the idea that once again we're going to have a handful of folks uh, in a room who are going to negotiate something and who are then going to, if, if, if negotiations would be successful, are then going to present to the rest of us for an up and down vote, do you do this or do you do, are you for this or are you against this? And again, if I, I know I'm repeating myself, but where you could handle the issue of reducing spending by $85 billion is the Appropriations Committee. Uh, and we would have hearings, people would come in and tell us why this is a good program, I don't imagine anybody comes in to tell us this is a bad program, but occasionally that happens. And we establish priorities. I, I'm opposed, I'm, I, wouldn't, I, I wouldn't vote for something that, that kicked the can down the road and, and delayed the sequestration. Uh, we've done that too many times. Uh, I believe that we can responsibly reduce federal spending by $85 billion. I don't like across-the-board cuts. I think they're irresponsible. We damage the good programs and the bad programs the same way. And I, I'm a believer in the Tenth Amendment to the United States Constitution, which says all those things not specifically granted to the federal government hereby reserved to the states and the people. And there are many things that we shouldn't even be doing in the first place. So let's figure out what we should be doing, what we do well, and support those programs. And let's get rid of the programs that we don't do well. Nothing is nickels and dimes around here, but it's an expression in Kansas that people relate to. And so you can nickel and dime programs. The things we ought to do, we ought to do well. And the things that we shouldn't do, we shouldn't do at all. And across the board cuts reward bad behavior and good behavior equally. 
and it's no way to raise kids. I'm avoiding this side of the table. I know there are difficult questioners or questionnaires over there. Yes, ma'am. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what your plans are for candidate recruitment? Absolutely. Uh, the question was about plans for candidate recruitment. We're going to recruit great candidates. <laughs> um, you know, we have significant opportunities for success. I'm reluctant to say that. You know, there was a pause before those words came out of my mouth because I don't want to lose credibility with all of you. You've heard it before. The, the numbers, once again, are in our favor. Uh, the number of Republicans versus the number of Democrats that are up. Uh, the seats that the Democrats have to hold are in states that, uh, almost without exception, uh, Governor Romney fared much better than President Obama. It's the second uh, year of a second-term president. History is on our side. Uh, and I think one of the lessons of the election is that while raising the resources and having the money is, is important, it requires good candidates that that money supports. And what I've said and what I believe about this topic is that my goal is to elect Republicans in a November election. And therefore, we have to do everything we can to encourage voters in states across the country <coughs> to nominate Republicans that can be elected. I'm not of the view that it's helpful or that we necessarily have the ability to say this is our candidate, uh, but I am of the view that we have a great opportunity to sit down with folks across the country in the states, the governors, the legislative leaders, uh, grassroots organizations, chambers of commerce, business interests, and encourage the bringing together of candidates that are acceptable. Uh, acceptable in the sense of they are less likely to make errors that cost us in November. And we could pick a bad candidate, outside groups could pick a bad candidate, but we could pick better candidates if we're all in the same room trying to find that, to, that person. I am, in, in regard to recruiting, I'm very anxious to change the image and reality of the Republican Party in regard to minorities, uh, Hispanics, women. We will never be a majority party if we can't hold or retain women voters in this country. I've sat down with all the Republican female senators to talk about how we do this. Uh, a lot of it is, and Republicans need to have a message of hope and opportunity as compared to doom and gloom. We're, I'm very concerned about the fiscal condition of our country, but if I simply go out and talk about how bad things are, who wants to vote for that? I want to vote for somebody who's going to lead us out of the challenges that we have, and it seems to me we spend a lot of time defining what the problem is, and little time talking about what the solution is to solve that problem. So we want to, here's, here's what our plans are. As I said, we're going to try to recruit the very best candidates to get them interested in running. In places in which the candidates are appearing on their own, uh, we're having conversations with uh, leaders and individuals in states uh, to, to talk about how do we make certain that there is a consensus that develops around what a quality candidate, which, which person would be the highest quality candidate. We are teaming up. Every, every Republican Senate candidate will have at least one senator who is assigned to them as their mentor. Uh, and we are putting our team on the ground at NRSC significantly earlier than we have done in the past, in which we have a 
campaign person involved in those states that, again, it goes back to relationships. So that the candidate knows who that person is, has a relationship, trusts them. I don't, and, and we develop a, a relationship with the media, the press. I think if, if you want to come to a, a campaign and you come with four weeks to go, three weeks to go, two weeks to go, I don't think you have the ability in many instances to set, you certainly don't have the ability to set the campaign on the right path, and in many instances you don't have the opportunity to turn a, a bad campaign around. We also wanted to do, we will provide training. I ran for the House of Representatives seven times successfully. I ran for the United States Senate, and it was the first time that I really had to know how to deal with the media and the press. So we have candidates who have never run for office. Uh, I'm saying that I wasn't very good at it when I first started running for the Senate, but I, I'd run seven times. I ought to have some ability. As I look back at my own race, I, was, uh, I needed the kind of professional advice and, and care and treatment that we need to be giving our candidates. Uh, and so I never realized that a Kansan <coughs> I've learned in my Senate campaign, you do not have to answer the question that a reporter asks you. I never knew that. <laughs> in our state, if somebody asks you a question, you start talking. Uh, and so there is a great opportunity for us to, to provide mentoring, <coughs> training. Um, one of the suggestions that I think is a good one is that we need to hire the, the folks that can put, in a role model situation, a role modeling situation, can put a camera and a microphone in somebody's face and start asking difficult questions so that we can become comfortable in answering them. So there's opportunities for us to, your question was about recruiting and I went further than that, but we're going to be engaged in recruiting. And in some places, we're, I mean, look at Georgia. I used to say that we have uh, uh, every, uh, every house member but one who wants to run and then they told me, no, he's running too. <laughs> And so I'm not sure that we have the ability to, we don't have the ability to say you can run and you can't, but we can try to make certain, and in Georgia, this has to be a state by state basis. Georgia is a place that more likely than not, the Republican wins in November. Uh, Iowa's the other. Uh, we have two states that appeared in our lives uh, all at once, and Iowa's a much more purple state than Georgia, and we need to do it, we need to have a different plan in Iowa than we have in Georgia. Incidentally, if I'm saying things that make no sense to you, I, I'd welcome the, I I'd welcome and I would accept the uh, criticism. Yes, sir. Um, Ned McCulloch working for IBM. We have close to 3,000 openings in the U.S. right now, including a bunch in Kansas. And you just took over and delivered HHS, which obviously has a lot of programs that aren't working very well to supply workers for us. Have you thought at all about what you might be able to do with your new ranking uh, leadership position over at Labor HHS to improve? either the school system or worker training system? Well, I think if I understood the question, the crux of the question was, I now am the ranking Republican on the Subcommittee on Appropriations on Labor Age. And IBM has lots of opportunities, lots of vacancies, and can hire additional folks. And I think, although this wasn't said, we need to make certain we have people who are highly educated, motivated, and trained to fill those positions. Um, and what am I going to do about that? Is that the question? Uh, it's after 145. <laughs> uh, these, are, these are difficult issues for, for me, and perhaps for Republicans. I, I can't speak for all of us. But I generally believe that education issues are state and local issues. And so 
I, again, as I said earlier, when someone says, I'm having my picture taken, I try never to have a drink in a photograph. We work hard at solving people's problems. And so when you tell me that, the, the immediate response is, how can I solve this problem? And uh, I mean, I certainly have some thoughts. And we're working hard to emphasize science, education, technology, engineering. The numbers are astounding for the number of STEM individuals that we need in our workforce and the number of students who are going to graduate in those fields. Um, and so there, there, there is this gap that we have to fill. And in my view, it's we've got to find ways to encourage individuals, families, guidance counselors, schools to promote education. The business community needs to, to and we have more engineers in Kansas City per capita than any place in the country. And our engineering companies are stepping forward and providing additional private dollars to support Wichita State University, Kansas University, and Kansas State University to educate more engineers. It's the kind of thing that we need to promote uh, is the private sector and states and universities to, to realize where the opportunities are. Yesterday I sent to the, to the universities in Kansas what I was reading about the lack of cybersecurity experts. And most of my universities in Kansas are always looking for students. Students are looking for a degree that causes them to be employed. At least their parents are supportive of that concept. <laughs> and there's an example of where there is a gap to be filled. And so we've got to be encouraging universities, our education system. And let me, let me take this one step further, which is I'd love to promote a piece of legislation that, that I introduced and got Senator Warner to join me in. We, my, my interest, a focus of mine, is a belief that our country's fiscal challenges are significant and we can't continue to look the other way. I've been very discouraged by what I've seen in Washington, D.C. in the time I've been in the Senate. President Obama has presented four budgets, although, although not the fifth one. All four budgets, incidentally, raise taxes, increase spending, and one would think that we hear when we raise taxes we're going to reduce the deficit. But all four budgets do all three. Taxes go up, spending goes up, deficit goes up. The Gang of Six, which I was cheering on, uh, failed. Uh, the Select Committee, through the raising the debt ceiling, uh, left us with sequestration. Uh, Bowles Simpson, uh, which the President's own commission recommended, nothing came from it. So you look at our history and we discover that we're not doing what we need to do. We don't have the political will or desire to, to solve what I think is one of the country's greatest challenges. So we started looking for another alternative, and I'm not walking away from those issues, but growing the economy is clearly another aspect of reducing the deficit. And about that time, a, a report on entrepreneurship from the Kauffman Foundation landed on my desk. And uh, we're now in our third version of this bill. It's called Startup 3.0. Mark Warner, uh, I sought him out, and he became a, an early co-sponsor. And we've been to Silicon Valley and to South by Southwest and to CES, and we're promoting this idea that we can create jobs and uh, I don't always talk about reducing the debt, but that's a, a, a benefit that comes from this, by promoting the ability for somebody who has an idea to, to pursue the American dream to be the next IBM. And in um, part of that is visas for uh, foreign individuals who uh, come here and study and we send them someplace else after they get their PhD in engineering. It's also an entrepreneurial visa that doesn't get a lot of time talk around here about somebody who's got a business idea 
can invest their own money, ready to hire Americans, uh, and we tell them they're not welcome here. In the two years that I've been a member of the United States Senate, two, and a, two, uh, two years and two months now, um, seven countries have changed their laws and policies in regard to this issue. Uh, we now have Chile recruiting Americans to come to Chile to start a company. I was out in Silicon Valley and one, one of those companies that uh, is well known like yours says, you know, we, we were in line for 68 H-1B uh, visas. We didn't get any of them. But, Senator, we hired all 68 people anyway. We just hired them in Canada. And what's troublesome to me about that is those 68 jobs are not in the United States, but what's more troublesome, somebody or some bodies in those 68 people are going to create the next IBM. We're going to create the next Google or Facebook. And they're not going to be in the United States. And so, I guess to, to sum up at 1 o'clock, I would say that all of us as citizens of this country, me no different than anybody else in this room, have a civic responsibility to pass on to the next generation of Americans, a country in which our Constitution is upheld and freedoms and liberties are enjoyed, but also the opportunity for every American to pursue the American dream. And Michael Milliken was in my office of the Milliken Foundation, and, and I only say this because what he told me just stands out so strongly with me. He said, everybody around the globe knows the American dream. They know what that means. But many people are deciding America is no longer the place to live the American dream. That is something that I, as a citizen of this country, have a responsibility. My mom and dad, their generation, they did it well for me. And I have the fear that my generation is doing it very poorly for the next. And so while we talk about NRSC and electing candidates and Republicans versus Democrats, there's a much higher calling here for all of us. Uh, and it is that civic responsibility to make certain that the next generation of Americans have the country that we know it should be and can be. And we ought not fail. Previous generations didn't, and mine better not. Uh, thank you very much for all.